0: Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level. To stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit and fueled female athlete. Today's episode is brought to you by Practice Better. As a registered dietitian or health practitioner, do you ever feel so frustrated by the technology and the 18 different platforms that you have to use just to communicate with one client? It's like you need a way to host sessions, a way to chart, a way to invoice, to email, a way to schedule appointments, manage a calendar, send documents, etc, etc. You've got 20 different tabs slowing your computer down. Meanwhile, you lose your mind. And you've got sticky notes thrown all around your office. Am I right? I've been there before too, but guess what? Practice Better solves that. As a registered dietitian who manages dozens of clients at any given time, Practice Better has been my solution to having a one-stop shop for everything I need to manage my clients and my business. I've been using Practice Better since the inception of Rise Up Nutrition, and I have only good things to say. It is the complete nutrition practice management platform for health and wellness professionals, complete with client management, scheduling and booking, billing and payments, programs and courses, telehealth and messaging, integration with food journals and exercise logs, supplement dispensaries, and more. If you are a registered dietitian, health coach, or anything in the health field looking for a better way to manage your practice, try Practice Better. To help support this podcast, do so by clicking the unique practice better link in the show notes to learn more and sign up by clicking that link and using the code riseup up 20, you will receive 20% off your first four months on any paid plan. Yes, 20% off your first four months. Also, this is an addition to your first 14 days as a free trial. So you can explore all the features of every plan option. Remember to click the link in the show notes to support the podcast. Then use the code R I S E U P two zero Rise Up twenty. Okay, let's get to the show. Hi, fans and listeners, it's Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, your host of the podcast and owner of Rise Up Nutrition. I'm here today with a wonderful guest, Corinne Malcolm. She is a coach, physiologist, writer, and newly minted editor in chief for Free Trail. She's a podcast host and a professional runner for Adidas Terrex. She takes after her mom in that she has to do a little bit of everything. She's vexed many teachers, coaches, and parents with her need to know why, but that same impulse drives everything she does. Corinne has been an NCAA athlete in skiing and running, a national team member in biathlon and trail running. She's dropped out of college twice coached endurance sports for a decade. And most recently, she helped launch live broadcast commentary for trail and ultra running at races like WSER and UTMB. Corinne has a degree in health and human performance and a master's degree in environmental physiology. Corinne, thank you for joining and having this conversation with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I was like, ooh, yes,
1: I have vexed a lot of people over the years. <laughs>
0: No, that's awesome. And I I actually really loved your your bio that you sent over to us and just your honesty of, you know, this is me and what I've done. And I'm super excited to talk to you today. You have, you're very familiar with podcasts. You co-host a podcast yourself, Trail Society Podcast. And how long, and I've mentioned that before, we had your co-host, Keely Henninger on this one in episode 85 for anybody who wants to listen to that as well. How long have you been doing trail society?
1: We've made it past the one year mark as of like earlier, I guess, late off, late, uh, late September, I think with our one year mark. So we feel pretty proud that we've given there there's three of us. So it's myself, Keely, and then Hillary Allen, aligning our schedules, aligning our lives. It's been a, a really, really fun project. And it's cool that I think we're going to see it well into the second year and beyond.
0: Absolutely. This podcast is in its going into its third year, so cool. actually, probably by the time this is, and um, it, it's so, it's like really exciting to see it grow, you know, it's like how, where the conversations lead and to, yeah, just how it grows and everything. So congrats to the three of you and getting a year into it and definitely want to give it a shout out as a good one to listen to, especially as trail runners. Uh, the three of you are yourselves trail runners. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So let's start, Corinne, with sharing with our listeners more about your athletic journey. We mentioned you're a trail runner, but you were also an NCAA athlete on a national team for biathlon, which is the sport of skiing, cross-country skiing and rifle shooting at the same time. I'm really interested to hear how you got into that, maybe where you grew up, you know just that wasn't something I was exposed to growing up. so can you tell share us a bit about kind of when you started running, when you started skiing, and what that journey was like for you? yeah, a hundred percent
1: yeah, it's people are like biathlon, you mean triathlon right, like the swimming and the running, and I'm like no no it's 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 a winter sport, actually, yeah. Yeah, I grew up predominantly in Northern Wisconsin. My parents were in the Air Force. So we moved around a lot when I was really little, but spent most of my childhood in Northwestern Wisconsin, cold, wintry place, small town up near Lake Superior, and have always been a super athletic child, a super competitive child. I'm the oldest with two, two younger brothers who I've made race me since they were big enough to walk, I think. So typical prototypical maybe bossy oldest child making my brothers race me across parking lots and wanted to make sure I, I won obviously but of course you know played all the sports I think the only sport I didn't play growing up was volleyball you know parents were super supportive of us trying a little bit of everything and I really appreciate that that, that that I know now parents feel a lot of pressure to put their kid into one sport or play soccer year- round or swim year round or whatever it is I know that 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 is very much the the norm I think in. US athletic development from like a youth perspective, but I played soccer because we grew up in the North, the Northwoods. We did like lumberjack sports growing up, like log rolling and that kind of stuff, which is super weird. And then you sk- would ski in the winter, you know, play softball or baseball in the the spring and summer. So really just had a passion for, for be. I, I mean, being outside, but also I think the competitive nature of, of sport really just like, like, I don't know, I got it really early. You know, I think my mom said, you know, as a U10 soccer player, I was picking flowers, but as a U12 soccer player, I was like in the game. And that really, I think, developed a love for, you know, pushing my limits. And we didn't have a middle school track and field or cross country team. I know a lot of, a lot of programs now do, but we, we had like, you know, field day. Field day was like the best day of the year for me Mm -hmm. growing up. I had so much fun doing it, but started running on the cross country team and the track and field team in, High school, but was convinced I was a sprinter, like cross country was like a real push for me. I was like, I run the 400. I don't know what you're talking about. But then I got hurt actually a bunch kind of early on running just like growing, growing kid syndrome, you know, very typical, like early high school athletic development injuries, when you introduce a new stimulus, probably too fast. And because of those injuries, they're like, maybe you should ski in the winter. Like you probably should like take a break from, from the impact over the winter months. Why don't you join the ski team? So I joined the cross country ski team in high school and honestly did not love it right away. Oh. Like kind of hated it, was not good at it. Like naturally was a pretty good runner, was not a natural skier at all. The There's a lot of technique and a lot of timing and rhythm. And a lot of kids start skiing super, super young. You know, you talk to someone like Jesse Diggins. who's now the most like decorated US skier of all time, you know, she's been skiing since she could walk type of thing. Wow. And a lot of my peers were in that same boat too. And I was like, you know, a 13 year old being like, this makes no sense to me. Like, I don't like it. I don't get it. Running is easy. There's no gear. I hate this. And then my best friend joined the team. uh, She's a year younger than me joined the team my sophomore year. And that like really clicked because all of a sudden it was fun because I had this person with me to go through the ins and outs of, of practice every day. And so, you know, grew up in a town where being a three sport athlete was really important. You know, we were, we were kind of expected to, to play a different sport every season. And, And that might seem intense, but I think it honestly was really good from like an athletic development standpoint that it kept us out of trouble. It kept us busy. And we, we did get to do a little bit of everything and we weren't, we weren't pressured or forced into early specialization either.
0: Yeah, no, I I think my high school was kind of like that too, or just my town of, of one, the, the importance of doing sports, even if you weren't necessarily a great athlete or loved it, it was like, this is a social thing, keeps you out of trouble. And it was every season was something different, you know? my, I mean, my school did have indoor and outdoor track, which is kind of like the same. I mean, it's a different sport, but it's kind of the same, but, um, but otherwise like it was, it was something we did too. So, so you didn't love skiing until your best friend joined. And at what point were you like, Whoa, I'm actually really good at this despite other people having doing it since they were two years old or whatever. Yeah. I think
1: I got lucky that I could, I'm I think I have a predilection for being very strong. Like I joke, I joke that my family is designed to like carry sheep and dig potatoes (laughs) and skiing is a huge strength component to it where we do a lot of stuff in the weight room. And that clicked for me like right away, like really, really enjoyed that. So I think I got a little bit lucky in that, well, maybe I wasn't very coordinated. I uh, had an engine and was, was very, very strong as a young, as a young athlete, probably earlier than a lot of my peers in that regard. And then, I think it was between my maybe my sophomore and junior year of high school they do regional elite group camps for for skiing where they kind of in each of the in each of the regions across the country they put together like a summer week-long training intensive um, and for the Midwest it's predominantly Minnesota and Wisconsin skiers I think we had a couple uh, we had a couple of people coming out of Chicago or like the Chicago area as well down in Illinois but we got together you know, once a week and the the camp was held in my hometown and my high school coach was kind of responsible for putting it together. And then the U S ski team coaches would come, would come in for the week. And I think I probably wasn't supposed to be there, but I think, I think this guy, Bill Pierce, like saw something in me and, and knew like, I hadn't made like the junior national team or like the, the regional junior national team that, that season, I had just missed it. And so I think, I think I got really lucky in the sense that he was like, you know, it's happening in Hayward, like where where I grew up, like, we'll, we'll let, like, we're gonna, we'll, we'll send, like, we'll let Corinne come, like, we'll, 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 yeah. we'll squeeze her in. And so all of a sudden, I got to spend a week with, like, people who enjoyed the same thing as me, who, you know, it wasn't just me and my best friend, it was me, my best friend, and like, 40 new best friends from Minnesota and Wisconsin. And, you know, getting, we did time trials, and, and, you know, while you might not excel in everything, like, we did a running time trial, a skiing time trial like a roller skiing time trial and a strength test. And like, I did really well in the strength test and I did really well in the running time trial and like, okay. in the skiing one, I was like, Oh, okay. Like it's not, you know, like we all have our strengths. Like I think saw a little bit of shine in that moment of like, Oh, I like I can hang with these, with these kids. I don't know what I'm doing. And they've been training in a very different way than I have, but I think, you know, I can be here. And Matt Whitcomb, who is the U S ski, te- one of the U S ski team coaches, at the time gave some motivational speech. And at the end of it, like my friend and I were like, we're going to the Olympics, like for sure. And so, you know, it's like right place, right time phenomenon. And, you know, whatever, whatever a motivational speech from a US ski team coach does to a 14 year old, 15 year old, you're like, Oh, I'm in like, I'm committed to doing this thing now.
0: And and you were training for the Olympics but in biathlon so when did the shooting come into play and is that yeah. something you did as a family like sport kind of growing up or something
1: Yeah it's kind of yeah. comical cuz I joke that like I got my hunter safety permit when I was 9 because Okay yeah growing up in the Midwest I like went to That's boy scout you camp with my brothers and we shot BB guns and yeah. that kind of thing but I I went to Montana state to ski and was on loan to the running team so ran cross country but didn't have to go to the practices which irked, irked a few individuals, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah. but I was like, I'm training really hard. I just, you know, they, they were always like short a person cause someone was hurt. Someone had to stay back to do something. And so I got, got picked up to come along to a lot of stuff, but moved up to Montana to ski and really loved Bozeman and loved our, our team, but was qualifying for NCAAs, but not getting to go because in skiing, you can only bring three men and three women. Oh, wow. And our team was good enough that we'd qualify five women you know, or six women and you only get to bring three. And our coach really believed in like this, like in seniority and putting in your time. And so as a freshman and as a sophomore, like I'm not senior in that, in that group. And so felt, you know, felt jilted in a way and like was frustrated and wanted to get to travel, wanted to get to do sport more full time and basically took an opportunity to do that. I got recruited by I was still a junior for biathlon. I had like one more year as a junior athlete, so you could go to junior worlds and European championships. And got recruited by the junior development team coach and said, "Like, hey, like, why don't you give this a shot?" So I figured it out with the NCAA clearinghouse. Like, I'm going to go do this thing for a year. It's not going to ruin my eligibility. And if I like it, great. And if I if I don't like it, like, I can come back to school. There'll be a spot for me on the team, etc. So I did, I like packed up my car and drove from Bozeman, Montana to Fort Kent, Maine, which is basically in Canada yeah. in Northern Maine. So from one, one place to the next that has a bunch of moose and um, <laughs> like went all in, like I wasn't being a very good student. I didn't feel like I was being a very good athlete. And so dropped out of college for the first time to drive across the country and, and ski in a circle and learn how to shoot a 22 because someone told me like, Hey, you might be good at this. And I, yeah, you know, once again, right time. Right place, like taking advantage of that opportunity.
0: Wow, wow! So, um, and just to kind of put things in perspective, and you'll listeners will understand why in a moment. But what year was that?
1: So this was I left school in twenty ten. Twenty ten. Okay,
0: yeah. The reason I wanted to ask the timeline is because I know, and something I really want to get into with you today is your experiences with overtraining syndrome that I think you, you identified or started feeling it around like 2013. Is that correct? Yeah. So I don't, I guess let's just start there in having you define for our listeners, what is overtraining syndrome and then, you know, just kind of starting with your experiences of that or when you think maybe it started to happen. Yeah,
1: totally. I mean, I think there's two big ideas here, right? That like, Training is best. Physiological adaptation is best when you have adequate stress combined with adequate rest equals recovery, equals adaptation, et cetera. It's what we're, it's what we, what we want. But when those stress buckets get messed up, we have imbalances. We have, our body doesn't, isn't in homeostasis anymore. There's, there's too much stress on the system to adequately get you back or better than where you were. And that can be physical stress, but that can also be psychological and emotional stress as well and so i you know jumped all into the sport moved across the country like rapid rise to the from the junior national team to the senior national team no development pipeline in there at that point in time now there is which is phenomenal to help athletes kind of move from um because there's no u23 group in biathlon you're a junior and then you're a senior which is a big jump for like a 20 year old to make yeah. and so there was no there's no safety mechanisms and that's like kind of an important i think piece of that puzzle. But overtraining syndrome, I like to think of as being the end of a pipeline or like the end of a train train line in which like no, there's normal training and normal recovery at the near end like that's a station and then you do a training camp let's say or a big training weekend, you know you've got a lot of stimulus, that's that's functional overreaching, right? Or you load the system it's probably more load than normal and you're going to need recovery afterwards but you do you recover and then you can you know but it's more than normal training and then further down the line is would be like non-functional overreaching where you've you've done more than you're supposed to do plus maybe there's added stress in your life and a little bit of recovery or a little added recovery doesn't bring you back to normal you have to take a little bit more rest to bring you back to normal and it's non-functional because you're no longer making positive physiological adaptation, adaptations to that, like, to that stress, be it once again, physical or, or from other sources. And then overtraining syndrome is the far end. It's the final destination on that train line in which, you know, it's, it's people, I think oftentimes use it as a verb. And I think that's incorrect. Like, oh, like I did a little bit of overtraining last year. Like that's not, it's not what overtraining is. That's like maybe you overreached. Maybe you, you like you were burnt out, but like overtraining from like a diagnosis standpoint from a, uh, how are we going to delineate this from other things standpoint? Is that it's not a verb, it's a place. It's a, it's like you can't actively do it. You are now there, type of thing. And so it's a little bit of rest, you know, a week of rest, two weeks of rest isn't gonna cut it. A month of rest might not cut it. Like you do need like a full kind of kind of reset. And the the struggle with something like OTS is that it's a diagnosis of exclusion, right? You gotta, you gotta make sure you don't have mono or limes or an autoimmune condition or, or being, you know, anemic or have any sort of dietary issue. And that dietary issue piece, which I know is something that you actually like a a space that you work in a lot is that there's been some really great papers recently. And this is something I think we've always, always known. Like I was never amenorrheic, for example, while, while being in the state. So I had like enough energy that that was not an issue, but, when there's a lot of overlap between something like OTS or overtraining syndrome and what we know as like red S or reds with that being the, you know, they're both, they both take a diagnosis of exclusion. And, you know, essentially we could say you probably don't have overtraining syndrome if there's a dietary component and by dietary, just meaning like having energy deficiency. So that's, you know, they, but they have, otherwise they have very similar, symptoms and markers, right? Like it's very hard to tell tell the difference. But I do think that that's caused a lot of confusion over time and it was only recently in the last like 2 years where a good papers come out kind of setting that stage up for people and I really think that that's going to be beneficial for coaches and athletes and clinicians who all work in that space because they take slightly different like modes of like therapy or yeah. or recovery to I think really
0: bounce back from for sure. So yeah, I want to get into this a lot, but I liked your explanation of like, you know, you can overtrain for that day or the week, but that's very different than overtraining syndrome. And to draw the parallel to red S, it's like you can underfuel for a day or even underfuel for a week, but that's different than being in a state of red S where we are chronically underfueled and fueling better for one day is like, Good. That's a start. But, you know, we've got a lot more to fix here. And I think the same thing with overtraining syndrome. Oh, you took a rest day. Good. That's a start. But it's going to take a lot more than just a rest day. So and and there is so much overlap between overtraining syndrome and red S. And I think that you could be in a state of red S and also be overtraining.
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, there's probably some combination of these things for sure, available to people, people, it turns out there's probably similar inclinations or yeah, I think, I think people who are at risk for one are likely at risk for the other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because of the, the nature of kind of what behaviors are you engaging in to get into so this place in the sure. first place? Yeah. So, so going back to you and your personal uh, journey with overtraining syndrome, and this maybe just in hindsight too. Do you think there was a nutritional component for you or do you think that your nutrition actually was okay? I think my nutrition was like relatively adequate, but
1: I do think that like, if I look back to some of the like other things going on, like some kind of weird anemia stuff, like I think, I think I was getting in enough energy, but I think that it was lacking in certain qualities. Like, I don't think I was eating enough protein. And I think that's a thing that like a lot of athletes struggle with indefinitely, unless you're like really kind of paying attention to it. Actually, I I think my like friends who are vegetarian and vegan do a better job just because they like have to think about it. They're paying attention to it. Yeah, Yeah, They're paying attention to it actively. And I'm just like, oh, I'm along for the ride. Um, So I think that like moving into an Olympic training center in which like you're in a cafeteria setting like that. I grew up in a place where it's like we knew where everything we ate came from. You know, like we had chickens and we like hunted venison and my dad's, my dad's a family practice doctor. And so his patients would like bring him like, you know, beef that they had grown type of thing that they had raised and and like on their ranch down the road from us. So I think that I went from a place of like eating locally, eating, eating stuff that I really connected with to being in a cafeteria setting that, and while for some reason that wasn't really an issue while I was in college, that like became a more pronounced issue when I was in this Olympic training center. And I think there was like a fishbowl aspect of it, where you're just like, kind of observed, you know, like a constant in a constant state.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you know, nutrition certainly wasn't the leading issue for you, but it might not have been optimized. We can, in hindsight, kind of reflect on that. And if you could go back, what, in what ways do you think it's just that, like being more comfortable in the dining hall and focusing on protein? Like, what are some ways that you think you're fueling would, could have been better? in that situation. Oh, it's things I'm like still working on.
1: I'm like, I, I joke that I'm a bad athlete all the time because I like don't, in part from being overtrained, I've, I've tried to take a pretty lackadaisical approach to running for a number of years now, which has not, yeah. not been helpful. Um,
0: <laughs> but it, it makes sense. It, it makes was helpful sense. initially,
1: right? Because if I don't yeah. care, it can't hurt me. But turns out when you don't care and you run a lot, you can still get hurt. So (laughs) um, something else will break. I, um, you know, just like I didn't, I wasn't doing a lot of little things in that sense. Like, you know, it's really easy to, to drink like a recovery drink. It's really easy to do that. And like, nope, not something I did at all. So I don't, I think, I mean, I ended up moving out of the Olympic training center partway through my time there for like, for a lot of those reasons though, just I needed my own space. I needed my own space to decompress at the end of the day. I needed, I needed, you know, like my, my like roller skis, almost like a bunch of my like key sports equipment, like didn't even live in my like little house that I lived in. I like left it at the training center so that I was coming home. I was like, oh, it allowed me to leave work at the office yeah, in a lot of ways, right? Where it was like, I leave my things here. I come to this place to do the thing. And then I go back to my, my place that is devoid of those things. And I'm a, I'm a different human there, which in hindsight, like I'm really impressed with my like 22 year old self, like and the ability to to, to like re- recognize that I needed that. But I think a lot of the food stuff kind of was tied up in that as well, like getting to cook for myself again and putting myself in a position where it's like, I, I enjoy cooking. So having that, like having a kitchen available to me, I think was really, really valuable in that sense. And I can live in those cafeteria environments for a training camp or for a meal, you know, for, you know, I'm having lunch with my teammates type of thing. And it's nice because I don't pay for it. And it's like, Oh, I can take a whole sleeve of bagels home with me if I want. Yeah. I think that being in that environment 24 seven, like kind of feeling like you're living in a retirement center where you like walk down the hall, you know, you got a roommate and then you like walk down the hall to the cafeteria together every day. It's a, uh, it's weird to have a bunch of, you know, 20 and 30 somethings living in that environment constantly.
0: Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And I think for any, whether it's a, a training center like this or college students, for sure, in the dining hall, you know, there's a lot to be grateful for in a dining hall. You don't have to spend the time cooking. You don't have a grocery shop. Money can vary, I know, with, with how much meal plans might cost or if it's free. But it's like, there's a lot of convenient things about it. But then there's also something about making your own food and just hold, you know, holding yourself accountable for it and being excited about it. And especially if you are somebody who enjoys cooking, you know, it adds value to your life when you're doing it yourself too. So I think there's pros to both, but I can see how being in that situation all the time is really difficult. Yeah. As opposed to you're
1: walking to the dining hall and you're like, okay, what's available to me today? Cause like the hot, you know, the hot foods are going to change, change every day. They've got the staples there, you know, pretty, pretty consistently, but it's like, okay, like what like what what's speaking to me what do I want to eat it's a little bit harder I think to listen to your body in those
0: settings because yeah, it's like not, intuitive eating and yeah, and listening to I cravings and stuff like that isn't as easy yeah
1: like these are my two options what would I like to what would I like to partake in
0: mm-hmm. yeah Hey fans, I hope you are enjoying this conversation so far and we'll be back to it in just a moment. But first, I want to pause and let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Female Athlete System of Transformation, aka a fast track to overcome disordered eating and use food as fuel to perform at your highest level. The Female Athlete System of Transformation is my unique program and proven systems to guide female athletes to understanding and implementing the proper nutrition for their sport, life, and health. Myself and my team of registered sports dietitians work one-on-one with clients to address their unique needs and counsel them through the nutritional and behavioral changes needed. Many female athletes who resonate with disordered eating, mental guilt around food and body, relative energy deficiency in sport or female athlete triad, amenorrhea, repeat injuries due to negligent nutrition, or frankly, just a lack of knowledge and understanding on their fueling needs have seen incredible success in the fast track. After years of working as a sports RD, I've compiled the most effective ways for female athletes to learn nutrition, be supported, be challenged, and ultimately find their success with fueling as fast as possible. So don't wait another day. Get to your goals faster by joining the female athlete system of transformation. Look in the show notes or head to the website to book a free call and learn more. Okay, now let's get you back to the conversation. Enjoy. Okay, so... So I got a little sidetracked there asking you about your food situation, but I want to go back to like, what did overtraining syndrome feel like for you? There's things you could have done better with your nutrition, but that maybe wasn't really what was wrong. Like what, how, when did you start thinking something's wrong with me? And why did you start thinking that? Like, what were you feeling and experiencing?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I was in an environment where I was like a 21 year old training with people that were 10 years, my senior, and just kind of expected to keep up. So there's like a lot of, a lot of flaws in that system where it's like, there's kind of a a program for the, the, the group of you. And, and, and while, you know, I've, I've had to run group trainings for, for youth and junior athletes and whatnot, like, you know, you kind of have to make a plan and, and try to vary it when you can for people. But like being in a high performance environment with that model, I think was a little bit, was a little bit hard because I wanted, you know, I'm a competitive human. I like wanted to keep up. I wanted to like show that I had a spot on the team and I was supposed to be there, et cetera. And so on. But there are a lot of other factors too, right? Like I'm in a brand new environment, which is stressful. You're in a, that fishbowl environment where it kind of feels like every day is a test, you know, and the finish lines go is like just like continuing to move away from you because your teammates are also getting better. It's like a time trial that never That never ends as you're chasing, and I like had been in a a relationship with one of my teammates at one point, and we'd broken up, and so there's like this like mm, this like turmoil, psychological Mm -hmm. stress of being in that environment. I had an injury during that point in time where it's like I had to do a lot of altered training. I had fallen and, and hurt my shoulder in a training session. We had a lot of coach turnover that like on the ground due to various reasons, and so it's like we didn't have a lot of consistency. Or oversight in that regard, as far as like someone checking in on us and just being like, "Hey, are you are you good?" And I remember, you know, I felt like I had a lot of, you know, one, I was just like, you know, I'd, I'd go and put my shoes on to go for a jog, and it was really hard to make the jog happen, or like I'd uh, like I wouldn't get past putting my shoes on, type of thing. Or I think I I I definitely felt a lot of the psychological like symptoms as well. Like I'm not a person who. I mean, I definitely feel full spectrum of emotions. I like, I, you know, I get to be happy and I get to be sad. But was definitely, you know, was was dealing with depression and that kind of thing during that time. That's not something that I've I've struggled with throughout my life in a big way. And I remember because of that fishbowl environment, like I didn't want to work with our team psychologist. And I went to the athletic trainers at the training center and I said, "Hi, like I need I would like to talk to one of the sports psychologists, like at, that are part of the U.S. like Olympic committee." I need someone to talk to about, about life. And I don't, like, I was worried that if I had, I had to go to my coaches about that and they had to go to, you know, our team psychologists, that it would be kind of this controlled environment. And, you know, I don't think that's how systems are designed necessarily to work. And I, I don't think there was anything malicious or there's no intent, like malicious intent with how that was designed. But I just think as like a young athlete where you feel like you feel that kind of like pressure to succeed and pressure to to like show that you belong that any any sign of of weakness feels like a like a you know feels like a weakness feels like you don't want to show that and so i think the psychological components of it were pretty profound like you're like i can't sleep but i'm really tired and everything i'm sore kind of all the time for no reason and so i wasn't recovering well psychologically was like dealing with symptoms like wasn't sleeping very well And then was like, you know, having underperformance and and ended up ultimately dealing with like kind of a weird kind of sudden anemia in which like, I'd never been anemic and suddenly wasn't absorbing iron well, which was kind of bizarre, took a long time to kind of work, work its like work around Kind of around the system, but almost a, like almost an autoimmune response in which it's like, oh, you don't absorb this thing very well anymore. Interesting. Um, so perfor- like performance declined. And that, that's a big thing too, right? Like you look for performance decline, right? Like when you're burnt out, you can still kind of like pop really good performances. But when you're physiologically and metabolically injured, it's really hard to maintain any semblance of like normal performance. And so was dealing with a very uphill battle as far as an ability to to be at the level I needed to be at, to hit times I needed to hit, to to keep up with, you know, keep up with said teammates to time trial well. And then, you know, additionally, like we do a lot of heart rate work with skiing. Like we all like I've worn a chest heart rate strap since I was like 13 for workouts, which is not, you don't see that a lot in the trail running community. It's like not something that many, I feel like many runners in that space do. But a heart rate thing you can look out for in that regard is, you know, it's really hard to keep your heart rate low enough during easy workouts. And it's really, really hard to get your heart rate high enough during hard workouts. And so that's kind of just like an indicator of chronic fatigue or chronic stress on the system that's not responding. Like your nervous system isn't responding well to it. So the whole smattering, you know, a little bit of everything going on in that space.
0: I really appreciate how you said this is a, a physiological and metabolic injury because I would imagine you probably grappled with this. I've never I don't think I've ever experienced overtraining syndrome. I I haven't, I'll just say that. Like I've had my bouts of I might be overtraining, you know, this week or this month, and I've also had my bouts of like lack of motivation, but it's something that always comes back around with just a little time or a little rest or a little more fuel, whatever. But I really appreciate that you said this is a metabolic injury because I would imagine many athletes going through this are struggling with the psychological side saying like, why can't I just motivate myself? Like this is an easy run. This is an easy practice today. Like, why can't I just do it? And then you maybe finally do find that motivation to do it, but you don't perform well and it feels terrible and you're not recovering and you beat yourself up more with that. There's, but it's like, when you say this is a metabolic injury, like my body's not responding, my nervous system isn't responding. Well, You know, there's in overtraining syndrome research, there's even like you were mentioning some blood biomarkers, like suddenly you were anemic. We can also see like elevated glucose, like weird wonky things happen because it is a metabolic injury. So I think that's, you know, it's hard. Like you said earlier, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. Like we're saying, well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. So then we're kind of left at the end of the day with maybe it's overtraining syndrome because it can present itself so differently and we can get there in a hundred different ways too. I think if you're experiencing this, you know, to keep that in mind of like, this is a metabolic injury and I, need, I truly do need to heal all of these different things. And that's why it can take so long to heal because it's not one thing you're healing. It's not, oh, I have a bone injury. I'm healing my bone. It's I've got to heal all these different things. (laughs) Yeah. And we've had the discussion
1: of like, you know, uh, not all stress fractures are the same, right? Like if there's a metabolic underpinning for for, like for this stress, like this bone stress injury, like cross training like a crazy, like a crazy person isn't going to be beneficial because you have a metabolic injury as well. And I think that that's the big thing with overtraining syndrome is that it's not like, oh, well, I can I'm just going to go do something easy for an hour every day. It's like, well, no, like your system is so stressed out that like you can't do that that makes it like like you need, you truly need rest and recovery. And it's like, you walk the dog, maybe you're doing some yoga, but it's like, it's not an easy spin. It's not an easy run. It's like your, your cortisol is like going, 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 you know, totally haywire. Like you can't continue to introduce new stress to the system.
0: Yeah. So this might be sad if somebody's resonating with this. this might be sad to hear, but I'd love for you to share how long did it take you when you did decide I need rest or I'm going to step away from the sport, like how long did it take you until you felt that this metabolic injury was resolved or healed?
1: Yeah. And that's an interesting question because I feel like it's probably come in waves a little bit. So I ultimately like I withdrew like partway through Olympic trials in 2013, ahead of the 2014 Olympics. And I was at a place where it's like, you know, this is just, I'm you know i can't continue to do this thing like this is this, there's no there are no returns happening here and so you know pulled the plug that i think that was technically fall of 2013 ahead of like that winter season which would name the 2014 february olympic team and i took you know a bunch of time completely off i ended up going back to school in january of that year so i was i just like leaned into work like i was working as a nanny and doing other things so i like i worked and I made a rule for myself that I, I wasn't like, I, you know, I lived in Bozeman, so you'd like walk to work or, or that kind of thing. But I made a rule that I wasn't allowed, I wasn't exercising and I wasn't going to do anything if I wasn't invited by someone to go do it. So like if a friend was like, Hey, like, I'm going to go, I'm going to like, and this was first it took months off. Like I took, you know, that this was October. So I took November, December, I saw family, went home for Christmas, you know, November, December, January, February, like basically completely off. And then like introduced social activity in which it's like, oh, we're going to my like my friends are going to go on an easy ski tour, like and they've asked me to go with okay, like, my friends going to yoga, I'm going to go with type of thing. But as opposed to like, it wasn't training, it wasn't exercise, it was like, complete release of the reins. I'm not going to go do these things. And I think that went through, you know, that whole next summer, this is the summer of 2014. That next maybe I was like hmm like I can do a little bit more so like a year later and then 18 months later the next summer I like casually did a little bit like more running like casually it was like ooh, like trail curious type of thing so 18 months later was like you know going to some local events and that kind of thing but wasn't you know wasn't doing any big mileage wasn't doing any big training was just like kind of like you know getting back out with my community but 18 months of like you know six months of very little to nothing, you know, a year of, of a lot of nothing, 18 months of me being like, okay, I can kind of get back out with my, with my community and then kind of continue to build from
0: there. Was this difficult for you or was it a a relief? Horrible.
1: Okay. It was, I mean, as soon as I called part of the selection committee, to tell them that I was withdrawing from Olympic trials, I felt a huge amount of relief because it was like, I'd been pushing and pushing and pushing like an anonymous donor helped me fly to the East coast for the first half of trials that was held in August. And I was like, you know, kind of beating my head against a wall, trying to make it work, trying to like make it work outside of the, outside of like the national team support structure. Like I had moved back to Bozeman for like, for my mental health, essentially, I was like, well, I can, if, if I can train wherever I want, like I'm going, I'm going to Montana, which ultimately meant that I did not get funding for the following year because I didn't, I didn't stay out East. I so was trying to make it work. It was emotionally and socially more sustainable, but no longer financially as sustainable as it had been before. But it was the, the calling to tell them I was done felt like, felt like a huge relief. And then I don't think I missed exercise for a while because I was just so, so tired. So
0: tired. Yeah. And then
1: when I started school, it was great. Cause I like just fed, fed myself school time instead of it's something having else to focus f- on. Yeah. I, I totally just replaced it with a new thing to, to focus on, to finish my degree out. But I think that it took a long time for me to feel fresh and really enjoy movement. And it took, you know, I think that relief was first. And then there was a while once I started to feel good again, where like, I mean, watching the Olympics in 2014 was heartbreaking. And, you know, I think there was even a part of me in 2018 that was like, oh, that's really sad. Like, I, I really care about all these people. And it's, you know, that could have been me. That could be where I'm supposed to be right now. And it wasn't where it very much wasn't where I was at all. And so I think that that is always hard. But I think that there was probably equal relief and equal kind of just sadness for like you, you mourn, you mourn the loss that like you mourn that chapter akin to a, a normal injury where maybe you are removed from your sport for a time. It feels like you're kind of losing a friend. But I do think that that relief was a good sign of like, this is the right call. Like, quitting things are not easy, but I think removing myself from this dream that I had pursued for a long time while it was very difficult was very much like a okay, I can focus on, I can focus on me. I can focus on other things. I'm like not beholden to anyone else.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. So, around a year and a half into rest, rest and, and recovery. You started casually doing some trail runs, trail curious, as you said. And so at what point, I guess, did you feel like I can actually do, do this more seriously again? Or did you, was it just natural, just like your motivation and desire just kind of increased? Yeah. So I, I had a whole, like a whole thought
1: process behind it in which it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for some things. And I just want to see how they feel. I want to see if I like it, if I if I want to be competitive, if I want to be competitive and therefore want to do the training that it might take to be competitive, or am I okay changing my goals or being like you know okay competing or okay being out here without without like a performance aspect to it? So I had to like really delve through those layers of like what did I want and was I willing to do the things to, you know, have the outcome I wanted, or did I need to readjust my priorities and readjust my goals to get to a place that was, that was happy and and healthy and, you know, was, was pleasant. Not, I mean, not pleasantly surprised. I think I knew, I think in my heart of hearts, I knew that I'd be like, Oh, I like this and I can do the thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that being said though, like it wasn't until, you know, I feel like the last 18 months where I was like, Oh, I think I can take this seriously. Because I think my, you know, 2015, so my, like, didn't really start racing until 2016, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. It's a lot, a number of years where I didn't feel like during any of those times building into the trail community, building into the ultra community, I was, despite like, you know, pursuing some professional contracts and being offered a professional contract with Adidas in 2019, the winter 2019, I wasn't ready to, to like be a professional athlete or to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, to take on that like responsibility. Yeah. And just to feel and to feel be worried about the pressure. Be worried about the like, am I gonna like it? Or am I gonna get hurt because I care too much? Type of thing. Um, like if I take this seriously, what does that mean? So I feel like I I skated through a lot of many years of trail and ultra, just you know, kind of in a in a way laxadaisical or in a way not serious. But like I said, you know, there are other outcomes from that where it's like, oh, you do have to take care of yourself if you're gonna ask a lot of your body.
0: Right. I mean, running ultras is is no joke. <laughs> you're asking a lot of your body and your mind to to do that and to train for it. So yeah. But you know, Corinne, I really commend you for I guess I'll just say taking it slow or or putting yourself first. Like continuing to reevaluate what are my priorities is this really what i want instead of just jumping into it you know because obviously you're you're such a good athlete that you could have you were getting professional like contracts and things being offered to you you could have back in 2015 2016 been like yeah this is my new thing i'm going to go for it 100% and And that's where, whether it's burnout or overtraining syndrome, like can just repeat itself, right? So I think you really learned from your past on how to, you know what, like, this is my life, put myself first, reevaluate what are my priorities? Am I taking care of myself? Is this still fun for me? And really like, you know, yeah, I just commend you on, I guess, taking it slow,
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's easy to bite off more than you can chew or, or to have, you know, we'd say that, you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach sometimes. Yeah, And it's, you know, I think I, I, I mean, I work as a coach and with the trail society podcast as well. We, we spend a lot of time talking about some of these things and it's this notion of like, I wish that I could protect other athletes from my experience. And, you know, when I see another athlete go through that, I'm like, Oh, I know exactly where they are. Or I know, I know exactly what they've had to do to get to this position and and feel for them and and want, you know, like if, if there's anything if there's any way to bottle it up and be like here's a tiny taste of it you don't want this this medicine is not good for you i think that that would be, you know, that i i mean i i just i don't i don't want anyone to have to experience like you know walking walking through that and far too many people do for various reasons. And so I think being really open about it and someone is like, oh, you're really vulnerable. And I was like, I think I'm just really authentic. Like I just, I don't, I'm not gonna hide what I've been through or like add shame to being injured or to having to take time off or having to quit. I think that there's a lot of, you can take a lot lot of pride from all those things. And I think that we're conditioned to like not talk about our injuries, to not talk about our hard times, our difficult times. You know, most of us live via the, the Instagram reel of everything going really well all the time. And that's like not the reality for normal people or professional athletes who turn out to also just be normal people um, <laughs> with a fancy contract. Yeah, And so it's, you know, I think we pretend that we're invincible. And that's, you know, th- th- we're telling us ourselves a story of how smart we are and how good we are. And, and instead, it's like we get lucky a lot. And I think it's really important to, I don't know, to make people comfortable giving you know giving a voice to the things that are not always sparkly
0: and shiny Mm -hmm. absolutely and that's why i thank you so much for this conversation i don't think i've had a conversation really around overtraining syndrome on this podcast yet and of course like the conversations that you're having with keely and hillary on trail society as well as like just being authentic about these things because you know people are going to make their own mistakes but maybe. Maybe not as severely, or maybe they pick up on it quicker or something. They learn from our mistakes or or even like just
1: recognizing that they're they're not alone, I think is the big thing there, right? Like, Mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. I have felt these feelings or I'm currently feeling these feelings. And and it's nice to know that you're not alone when you're wallowing in it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So I guess like, I kind of just want to like hit on nutrition more because I know that you are such a, a good role model for fueling and advocating for fueling especially for you know training and the, the amount of training that you do could you share with us like like you mentioned in your past you don't think that fueling was your main issue was more the the pushing your body to the limits of psychological stress although maybe nutrition could have been optimized you know what are some things especially doing ultra races and trail running, what are some of your like nutrition priorities that you do focus on in order to take care of yourself and, and make sure that nutrition doesn't become a problem?
1: Yeah. And I think this is like, will hit home for people who have like busy lives and busy jobs is like just prioritizing things like coffee is not breakfast is a big one. I know many of us probably fall into that category on some days where it's like this latte is definitely breakfast. It's not breakfast. It turns out it's, <laughs> breakfast may be adjacent at times, but it's not breakfast. Yeah. So really like making sure that I put put my best foot forward. Like I don't really meal prep. I've got normally enough time for like lunches and dinners, but it's kind of like the second breakfast where like I generally block my time so that I can train in the morning. And then I talk to athletes and people and edit and edit stuff now for free trail in the afternoons prepping articles. And so it's like, I block my time in the morning. So I get up and I, I you know, I make sure that I I have snacks or food on hand. It's easy for me to eat before I head out to the trail or if I'm on a bike or whatnot, like making sure that I have that stuff set up. And then my meal prepping is more for like that second breakfast where it's like, I have something waiting for me when I get home. Otherwise it's like, you know, maybe I cut it a little too close and I'm like showering and immediately jumping on a call. And I don't get that, that set that like kind of, you know, very important meal. And sometimes that's a, you know, a recovery drink at the trailhead. And then once I'm home, that's, that's another thing though. It's like an overnight, like overnight oats or, you know, some sort of chia, something or another, but, you know, something that's got, you know, protein and carbohydrates for me when I get home, because, you know, I might be eating lunch at one 30 or two in between calls, which is like not ideal if I've, you know, had a, had maybe a recovery drink at the trailhead, maybe if I've like remembered to pack things, come home and then all of a sudden don't eat again until two, like that's not, not good for me, not good for, you know, hitting, you know, trying to try to find protein throughout my day type of thing. So I think that that's been a big thing is like just being, being better prepared to fuel myself throughout the day. Sometimes that's convenience things. And sometimes that's more like full, full meals. But then I think that, you know, I feel like I've always done really well with the rest. Like I love, I love cooking. And so dinner is really fun for me having time at the end of the day to, to cook a meal with my husband or we'll take turns cooking that kind of thing so i think it's the big thing i think for me was like the prepping the first half of the day food because i feel like that's where i wasn't wasn't fueling well and then i've talked a lot about this with keely in particular of of fueling on the run like oftentimes it's like oh i'm going for a 90 minute run i don't need to bring anything and it's like well if i bring stuff like i'm I'm coming out of this in less of a hole and so making sure that, you know, I do bring something on even on a shorter on a shorter outing so that I'm taking nutrition on the run or on the bike, setting me up well for when I get home or even it's like the the long run where you've got, you know, 20 minutes left of the car and it's like probably time to take another gel. And you're like, well, I'm going to be in the car in 20 minutes. I don't really need this. And it's like, OK, like, no, like I'm going to fuel through the end of this workout and then I'll move on to the next the next thing, and then I think that the other big, big important factor, which was probably something I struggled with a lot when I lived in the training center and and kind of through college, was that you know it, your your body's like not it's, it's what, your body and food's not like cashing checks, like it's not this like constant. There's no there's not like this constant balance that's going on. I feel like your your needs fluctuate a lot day to day, but in a way where it's like I think a lot of us on a rest day on a low day don't eat enough because we don't think we're doing anything that day. And in reality, it's like, well, I just ran for six hours over the weekend. So like my body doesn't, you know, my body doesn't know that it doesn't like my body wants fuel. It needs fuel. And like, it doesn't care that I might not be doing anything besides walking the dog that day. And so I think continuing to eat well throughout the course of the week and not just, you know, oh, I did really good on my, my long run day type of thing. I think I definitely fell. Ray to the well i'm not doing anything today so i don't need as much i'm not i'm not as hungry i don't i don't need to recover still and it's like no you're it's a recovery day you're still recovering from everything that you did over you know the last couple of days and everything that you're about to do over the next couple of days like you're setting yourself up for everything that's coming down the road so i think that you know my dietary approach is very holistic i don't i eat everything i'm like a total sucker for ice cream i have a lot of yeah. ice cream in my life <laughs> but I, like i want like. I think the biggest thing for me was like putting in a little bit of effort to like to make sure that there is food going into my body between the hours, hours of 6am and noon, because otherwise coffee became a meal and coffee is not a meal.
0: No, no, it's not. But yeah, especially for people who are doing morning training, that that morning fuel, it's so important. And yet it's so difficult to do because if you're yeah, if you've got work as well, like we're just so busy and So I love how you called it. I think you called it like second breakfast because it's like, okay, I wake up, I'm eating something, but this is really like my fuel for training, right? And so some people might call that breakfast, but if that's breakfast, then you still need second breakfast or maybe that's pre-training fuel and afterwards is, you know, real breakfast or whatever. And, And there was recovery in there too. Like you mentioned, like ideally it's, maybe I have something at the trailhead and then I come home and I get that second breakfast. So I think- you know, everybody's schedule is going to be different, but the struggle in the morning is real for a lot of people. And that's where we can wind up with, you know, over time, just like, oh, we're constantly under fueling in the morning and maybe we're not recovering well. Maybe we're dragging throughout the day. Maybe we find ourselves eating a ton at night because of it, or we find ourselves in that place months down the road of, being in a state of energy deficiency in red s. It's so easy,
1: particularly for people who are trail and ultra runners. And I know we're just gonna like we'll keep like just pushing this out. But it's um I think a lot of people who find themselves in that place of red S, it's not it's not always intentional, right? It's like you are asking a lot from your body. You're doing a lot of stuff. And like your body needs fuel for so many different reasons and fuel is so and food is so much more than fuel as well which is i think is really important but this idea that like it's i think and i think keely will speak to uh, has spoken to this with you is that like it's not always this like intentional limitation it's like you it's hard to eat enough sometimes and like if you're not if you're not Being intentional in your, in your eating that I think that it's really easy to, to get, to get behind and, and accidentally over time end up in that place of, of red ass because it's just, I don't know, peak, peak training for a hundred mile race is like just, oh, I mean, peak training for a marathon is also insane, but it's like, you can't, you, you, you don't, there's not as much wiggle room to mess up. I think when, when we ask as much as we do of our bodies.
0: And so it's really important to to stress the importance of this, of fueling, but also to just know for all of our listeners, like it doesn't, even though we want to bring intention and attention to it, it doesn't have to be difficult, right? You don't have to meal prep everything. It can be through convenient foods. It can be through shakes. It can be through your favorite foods even, you know, it doesn't have to, but it just, it does need to get. Done. The fueling needs to happen. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to go. be
1: difficult. But it like it has to happen in some yeah, shape or form. And that's gonna look different day to day because life throws so many monkey
0: wrenches at all of us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your sentiment too about recovery days or rest days being a bit harder too, that's a big one that a lot of people resonate with. But yeah, just exactly what you said of remembering that, like, wait, my body's still recovering from yesterday and it's still preparing for my run tomorrow. And something that always helps me too is like, like the example you gave of I just ran for six hours over the weekend, but like I'm not today. Well, guess what? Like the cells in your body don't know that. Like you might know you're not going to go for a run, but like your metabolism doesn't know that your metabolism is preparing for you to do this again because you keep doing it. That's what you keep doing. Yeah. Every, Every few days you go out on these really long runs. So it's like, it's, it scares people when they're still hungry on a rest day. But it's like, no, because your body is preparing for the fact that you continually keep training and it doesn't, it doesn't know that today's a rest day. It knows that you ask a lot of my body all the time and this is the amount of fuel I need to sustain it, you know? And so I, I like to think of that. I like to like personify the cells in my body and they're just, you know, sitting there with little smiley faces being like, are we going to run again? I'm hungry. <laughs> Feed
1: me I now. That's so much. <laughs> That's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, thank you for sharing like your, your priorities and stuff. And well, Corinne, we've been talking for a while. So I know we'll have to wrap this up, but thank you so much for, um, just sharing like, you know, your journey with sport and your experience with overtraining syndrome and dropping, you know, lessons learned about nutrition along the way. I end every episode with the same questions for all of my guests. I love it. Yes. You ready? hmm if there was one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? Probably sweet
1: potato fries. I really love sweet potato fries. I could eat them in like a a lot of different
0: ways. I think too. I love that. I have a follow-up question to that. Do you like your sweet potato fries like with ketchup or do you like them to stay sweet? Like, do you like like brown sugar stuff on them or?
1: I mean, I think that's the beauty, right? You can go a lot of different ways. And like, I'm not, I'm not afraid of a good aioli either. So I feel like, and I feel like they go with like mustard. There's so many options.
0: I know there are, they're, they're really good. I used to, I don't know why, but in my head, when I was first introduced to sweet potatoes and it was like served with like brown sugar and sweet things, like I didn't get that. So I was always like the savory, like I wanted it with the ketchup and aioli, but I've recently branched out and I'm like, no, it's really good with the brown sugar butter combo. All of a sudden it's
1: a breakfast food if if you're adding brown sugar to it, I feel like.
0: Yeah, fun. What is your favorite sport to participate in? I mean, I think I'm biased and I'm
1: supposed to say running. Yeah. Right? but I have been doing a lot of rock climbing and I really enjoy it. And I it's, once again, I'm really bad at it. And I think that there's a really, there's, there's a lot of thrill in being like bad at something and like having to learn a new skill. So getting outside and, and rock climbing has been really, really fun.
0: Awesome. How about as a spectator, what's your favorite sport to watch?
1: I think my favorite, I'm not really a team sport person, although I grew up because I grew up in Wisconsin and it's like a cheesehead state and my dad's from Philly. And so we watched like the Eagles and the Phillies growing up. So I was like, oh, this isn't for me. I really love cycling in general. And so all the road racing that's going on and then all of the the mountain bike racing, they've like, they do such a good job televising it. that I have a lot of, a lot of fun watching those races.
0: That's awesome. Great. All right. And then final question, is there a female athlete out there that for any reason at all, you want to give a shout out to for being inspirational whether well-known or just in your personal life.
1: I mean it's like I'm like my mom um <laughs> cuz I love her. Yay. I mean truthfully yeah like she was she was one of those people I was thinking about this earlier who there are so many women who I don't think we ever got to see their potential or see them succeed because they were told that they shouldn't do sport or that sport wasn't a place for them. And my mom's my mom's not yet 60. She's she's I've got a young I've got a young mom. But she, you know, was a phenomenal runner in high school. And like, I don't think ever really got the shine that she could have had later in life, but she was, I feel like I won the lottery on the mom front because she was supportive of athletics and supportive of me without, I read somewhere recently, it was like the difference between like pushing or pulling. It was like, she let me pull as opposed to push me. And so I feel like there's a lot to be said for like having a healthy relationship with your body and with food and with sport. And I think moms and dads are really important or parents, right? Whoever your parents are or or friends, parents who become your parents. I think like having, having someone like that in my life has been really, really important. Even, even now as an adult.
0: That's awesome. So shout out to Corinne's mother (laughs) for being a phenomenal athlete herself, even though maybe living during a time where she didn't get to shine as much as her potential showed, but being able to let your athletic potential shine through, you know, raising you and guiding you. So that's awesome. I love that one. Great answer. Well, Corinne, thank you again so much for having this conversation. It was super, it was a super nice one. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce fit and fueled female athlete. First, I have your red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with red S curious to learn more or know you have red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.RiseUpNutritionRun.com slash and download the Red S Recovery Race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus, while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, Female Athlete Nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this head to riseupnutritionrun.com/reds that's backslash r e d s and you can gain access and get the help you need fast too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition but you don't have to any longer become fierce fit and fueled links in the show notes and i'll see you next time